The readings from Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 10, and can be found on page 1181 of the Bibles in front of you. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They're a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory for ever and ever. Amen. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, the last half of the final chapters of almost any of Paul's uh, epistles, his letters, are not usually amongst the most meaty stuff that he writes, and certainly not the most intellectually demanding. And Philippians is no exception, and uh, Paul signs off his letter the way he began it, with a reference to grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's 1, 2, and 4, 23. And before he does, though, he goes, he shares the outworking of one of the gifts of the Spirit, giving. So um, take a look at this um, for a sec. Here you have a prism. You know that if you put a shine a light through a prism, out the other side comes a spectrum of colour. And if you put it in diagrammatic form, it looks like that. Now imagine that God is shining his grace upon the church and the outcome of the various gifts um, manifest in the church members. So we have different gifts according to the grace of God which is given to us. So grace in Greek is charis and gifts is charismata. So this is what we have. We have God's grace going into the church and through the church are a whole range of gifts. There are 34 listed in the New Testament but they're certainly not exhaustive. And that's what uh, we see, and that's what he is commending to them. Now, if St. Mary's 
um, is the only church that you have ever uh, belonged to, then you may not realise that our practice of never having collections is unusual. If you go to some church services, and I'll just share two examples of one I've been to, ones I've been to in the last uh, year, um, things that take on a very different tack. So, for example, in Church A, you may have a band leading with half a dozen songs. The volume is such that they are singing to you. There is no way you can hear the person next to you. So it is hardly congregational. It is rather a performance rather than, by the band rather than an act of worship by the congregation. The second half of the, the time is usually taken up with some kind of talk. But in between, there will probably be a 15-minute, no exaggeration, um, basically appeal for money. Put very crudely, but that's what it is. It's rather odd because often such churches tend to kind of almost take, you know, prayer can move mountains, literally. Now what they might call a miracle, we would call answers to prayer, providences of God, because a miracle in the New Testament sense can and did lead only to one conclusion, something supernatural had happened. The issue in question is whether the source is benign, God, or malevolent, the devil. There was no debate between Jesus and the Sadducees or the Pharisees that a miracle had taken place. Now such things are rare in scripture and they occur in connection with God's revelation. And miracles were God's ways of attesting his messengers. So you find them clustered around prophets like Moses, then Elijah and Elisha at the beginning of the 10th century, Jesus himself supremely, and around the apostles. So we don't want visitors to think that we're after their money, because we're not. We don't want them to think that they have to pay anything to, rev to um, gain God's rescue, because it is freely available. No one can buy a place in God's good books. So we have faith, to quote Hudson Taylor, that God's work done God's ways never lacks resources. And we found that to be true, whether it be for capital projects, whether they run into seven figures or six figures. We have always found that if we do the right thing and pray, things get delivered. We found that to be true in what you might call our revenue funds, the funds necessary to operate the church on a day-to-day, week-by-week, month-by-month, year-by-year basis too. For many years, in fact, we ask less than we need because we know that we will get more than we ask for. Then there's a second kind of church, standard Church of England perhaps, where they'll have a plate or a bag will go round and people can see what has already been put in. They can often see by whom. Now, of course, the committed members give by standing order and bank credit, so they put in nothing. So if you chuck in a couple of coins or even a fiver and you're a visitor, you will think yourself 
very generous. The story is told of um, a church where they had a big, as many do, brass plate on which they collect the money and it is taken up and given to the vicar and the vicar then offers it up um, to dedicate it to God's use. Well, on this particular occasion, the plate returned to the vicar virtually empty. So he took the place, the, pl- the, 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 the plate, he held it up towards heaven and he prayed, Lord, thank you for the safe return of these plates. <laughs> now, we don't do that for the same reason, that salvation is a free gift. We also don't do it because God loves a cheerful giver, no compulsion. And he also likes a secret giver. If our right hand is, if our left hand is not even to know what our right hand is doing, Jesus says, how much more important that other people don't. So verses uh, 10 to 19, we learn that uh, we learn something about the gift of generous giving. Mostly we, uh, oh we had the plate, yes, here we are, the gift of generous giving. So um, mostly about the joy and thankfulness it brings to the recipient, in this case the Apostle Paul. Next we'll see something about um, the joy it brings the givers, in this case the Philippians. And finally the joy and thankfulness it brings to God himself, who has of course initiated it all and it has gone full circle and back to him. And then we'll briefly cover the last few verses. So, the joy and thankfulness that generous giving brings to the recipients. Paul, in this case, in Rome. He writes in verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you've been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Today, giving money to anyone, anywhere in the world is very easy, provided both you and they have a bank account. All you need to do is go to your online banking, you uh, type in their account name, their bank sort code and their bank account number, you put in the amount you want to give, you press confirm and zoom, wherever it is in the world, they'll get it within a couple of hours. But in the first century, it was not so easy. So first of all for the Philippians, although Paul acknowledges they had a desire to support him, they needed to know where he was. He could have been anywhere in the Eastern Mediterranean. He was almost always on the move unless he was locked up in prison. So they had to know where he was. The second thing they needed to know is how do you get the money to him securely? I mean, that's not easy, is it? Well, on this occasion, they know where he is. He's under house arrest in Rome. And they had a secure way of getting the gift to him because Epaphroditus, one of Paul's trusted lieutenants, was in a position to travel to Rome from uh, Philippi and to take the gift to meet him, to meet his needs in his confined position. So Paul had taken the gospel to them when they were in need of salvation. 
and now they are in a position to help him out in his time of need. So Epaphroditus arrives with the gift and Paul sends a letter back with him, a letter of thanks, and amongst other things he expresses his true thankfulness to them for their thinking about him and acting in a very practical way. Because you had to kind of feed yourself in prison. You know, the Romans didn't give you the food. You needed people to provide it for you. And in doing so, we see something of Paul's attitude towards money. So verse 11. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. Now in his letter to the church in Rome, some years before, he'd mentioned, Romans 7, 8, that he used to be envious of others and to covet what they had, but now he had learnt to be content. Verse 12, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. He claims to have learned the, the, the secret of being content in any and every situation. Contentment is to live independent of things, to be self-sufficient. The contemporaries of the Apostle Paul in his day were big on contentment, well at least the ones who were called the Stoics. Now my parents and grandparents and their generation in the first half of the 20th century, they could be said to have uh, displayed Stoic tendencies and they had to. If you were growing up before the Second World War, there was no NHS. If you were ill, you had to pay. There's a photograph of one of my predecessors. He's easily spotted because he looks younger. The rest look as if they're about to die. But he, he wasn't. And um, apparently in 1917 or 20, whenever it was, he had uh, abdominal pain but his wife wouldn't let him call the doctor because they were a bit skint and he died of appendicitis. And I know that because the son of the church warden who was the GP was in fact a retired missionary at the church where I was a curate. And he told me that when he visited here about 10 years ago and he of course will have subsequently died himself. But he was an example of a Christian. And uh, if you didn't, uh, there was no welfare really to speak of. If you didn't work, you didn't get paid. You may have passed exams to go to a grammar school, but unless you were one of the few who had a scholarship, you wouldn't have gone because you wouldn't have been able to afford to do so. And so you would have gone to a secondary school where you would have left at 13 or 14 without any qualifications. They had to be stoical. They had to be self-sufficient. For Stoics, though, to be self-sufficient in the face of life's challenges, they had to draw on their inner resources. For Paul, for his contentment, he writes that he had learned. That's an aorist tense. That means it's a point in history. It's not the past generally. It is a particular event in his life where he learnt it. And that point must have been on the road to Damascus 
when he was converted. Probably just a year or two after Jesus' resurrection. So around 32, 33 AD. And for him, that point of encounter with Christ, who he had been battling, it was a a point of self-discovery that answered for him the big questions of life as to why he was there, who he was, how was he to live, and where is he heading. And he found in Jesus Christ, who had come knocking at his door, He found him and he opened the door and Christ entered. And Paul has been secure in Christ for the previous 30 years, assured that whatever happens at his imminent trial in Rome, that his union with Christ will never be broken. It will survive all that this life can throw at him. And even if his mortal life be taken, his eternal life with Christ will live on. That's the secret. Things, food, drink, shelter, aren't unimportant. It's just that Christ being the centre of our lives is the most important and everything falls into place around him. Benjamin Franklin Contentment, he was one of the founders of the United States of America, founding fathers. Contentment makes poor men rich. Discontent makes rich men poor. Now Paul was rich and thankful because he'd found the secret of contentment in Christ. In Christ, He could carry on his apostolic tasks to the full, verse 13, he says. And he knows his place. He knows where he fits in. He thinks neither too highly nor too lowly of himself. As C.S. Lewis expresses in Prince Caspian, when Aslan speaks to one of the children and says, I'll have to read it off of here. Ah, you come from the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve, and that is both honour enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and to shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. Be content. That is a very shrewd observation of C.S. Lewis. We should think neither too highly of ourselves nor too lowly of ourselves. The measure we should have of ourselves is the measure that Christ has us. And we need to be aware of our inbuilt sinful inclination, but also our God-given talent that we have been blessed with and we should use to the full. So Paul then uh, acknowledges that he did have needs, verses 14 to 16. He recognised that they alone helped him in his early days of his European mission, verse 15. And when he was in Thessalonica, verse 16, again and again, he says, they sent him aid when he was in need. 
And he uses the word share twice. In verse 14, it was good of you to share in my troubles. Verse 15, not one church except you shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving. Now the word share is sometimes translated partnership or fellowship. It's used of us sharing in the life of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit in their community of love to which they have called us up to join them. It's also used of us sharing in the common life with other believers. And we are in partnership with God in implementing his plans and purposes. It was good recently to receive a card from Claire Lucas, or Claire Dooley as she once was. She's now a UCCF staff worker in East London. And she writes to the wonderful church family at St Mary's. Again, just wanted to say an enormous thank you for your generosity to me and the work I do with CUs in East London. I couldn't have done that without your support and prayers. This is your work too. Like Paul, she is full of joy about our partnership with her in her work funded by our Christian Workers' Trust. Every March, every March, the Trust has an appeal and it gives away about £35,000 to uh, Christian work outside of St Mary's and Claire is one of those recipients. And of course you can join in partnering in work like that. It doesn't matter how much you give, God in the New Testament leaves that up to you. It is according to your ability, Paul writes to the Corinthians. But giving need not be limited to Christian charities, though they are a more tax-efficient way of giving. But giving is also little acts of kindness. Maybe a meal for a family that's just had an addition or a treat for a young family who's hard up, or just acts of hospitality towards people who probably will spend Sunday lunchtime alone. Maybe you can give a car to somebody who's a mission partner returning to the UK. Now I once gave a car away, but before you get too impressed with my generosity, you would need to know, of course, that um, By the time I'm ready to give a car away, there's not much life left in it anyway. But beware of Christians who tout for support, who drop big hints. They may receive material gains, but they're in danger of being corrupted. Paul to Timothy wrote, But godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world, and we take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith 
and pierce themselves with many griefs, he writes. Well, so much for Paul's joy in receiving. More briefly, the Philippians' joy in giving, verses 17 to the beginning of 18. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what you may be credited to your account. I've received full payment and even more. I'm amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gift that you've sent. So Paul is using language drawn from the world of banking. What may be credited would be the word that we might use of interest paid on an account by a bank to us. He expects them to receive interest on their giving to him. So we can expect to receive joy and blessing when our money is used for Christian work. It may be news from someone like Claire. It may be on hearing that some uh, have been particularly thankful to attend the marriage course, for example, or for a care for the family course, and they've picked up the wisdom and they've looked to the source that lies behind that wisdom. It may be any news of those who have grown up like Claire has, or have worked here and are now training or starting in Christian ministry. At our annual church meeting, I just sort of started doing an exercise and came up with 19 such people in just the last few years. And that doesn't include those of more than a decade or so ago. In the last few months, I've met all of our curates going back to the days of Neil Barber, which was in the last century. And they're all still complementarians, and they have resolute convictions on that and on the other important issues that are debated in the life of the church worldwide today. And it is, in joy, it is a joy, it was a joy to see our investment in them continuing in the true gospel work that they're engaged in. So we move on, and then we see how generous giving pleases God himself. Verse, the second part of verse 18 and 19. God sees the outworking of his grace in Christians giving to Christian causes, causes which are his causes. And he, of course, is delighted because it has gone full circle. He has initiated it by his grace. They have displayed it in their gifts. And it is all to the glory of God. And in doing so, we move from commercial metaphors to the language of the temple or the cult cultic worship that they had and it's expressed in three ways which are the spiritualizing of the thanksgiving offerings in the book of Leviticus. We have fragrant offering, that's how God views us supporting his plans and purposes through other people. The Old Testament language was of sacrifice and the kind of odour wafting up to God's as it were, metaphorical nostrils. But it's used in the New Testament as the real sacrificial offering of Christ himself on the cross. So in Ephesians 5.2 we have, 
just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's also described as an acceptable sacrifice. We can't earn our salvation, but our Lord Jesus Christ earned it for us. And as we recall in our Holy Communion service, the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was, quote, a full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice, we must realise that we cannot add to a full, perfect and sufficient offering. What we offer in Holy Communion is our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, not only with our lips, but in our lives. Being generous in our giving is part of that. It goes against the grain to give money away, but it liberates us from the stifling hold that money can have on us. And then thirdly, it's pleasing to God. What we do here and now can actually please God Almighty. The New Testament encourages us to give generously. It encourages giving to be regular, 1 Corinthians 16.2. On the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money. And it's proportionate, he says, in keeping with your income. Zacchaeus, when he was converted, gave half of it away, mostly because he'd crookedly acquired it, I suspect. It would have been a one-off, because he'd have gone straight after that. Or the Pharisees would give about 16.5% of their income, their tithe of 10%, and then their free will offerings. As a Christian, you should give, well, it's up to you, Paul says. Maybe, as m- maybe much more than 10%. Maybe a little less, maybe a lot less. Depends on your personal circumstances, which you have to pray and work out with God. Whatever it is, it should be something. If you do, then verse 19, there is a promise. My God will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches. Needs, not wants. But many Christians have found that to be true. And needs are more than our financial situations. Commitment to God and his work has benefits for the whole of our lives in ways which are not simply cause and effect. Our generosity stems from God's generosity. It's no accident that the Philippians begins and ends with grace, which means God's glorious riches in Christ Jesus. God has loved us, he's come among us, he died for our sins, he's offered us forgiveness, he's raised us to new life which begins now and lasts forever. And we in response love God with our whole heart, with our mind, with our soul, with our strength. And the last four verses show us An example of such love, verses 20 to 23. Love for God, verse 20. God gets the glory or the credit he deserves. St. Ebb's Church in Oxford has as its mission statement this. One, by which it means first. Purpose, the glory of God. Two, means of doing that. The Bible and prayer. And three, their objectives. Convert 
build up, send out. But the supreme amongst that is everything is to be done to the glory of God, that God gets the credit that he deserves. Now, Greek letters of the first century concluded usually with farewells and good luck, but Paul ends with greetings and good wishes. Love for others, verse 21 and 22. Greetings to each of the saints at Philippi, which includes um, from Philippi, which includes brothers like Timothy and other Christians in Rome send greetings too. So he has with him in Rome, Timothy. He has with him lots of other Christians. And he especially reminds them that they have greetings from those of Caesar's household. Nero was the emperor at the time. It's about 64 AD when he wrote this letter. And he had a close relative who had embraced the Christian faith. But the term doesn't really mean something quite so personal. It really means the Imperial Administrative Centre, rather like we would say Whitehall in London for us. It includes the Palace Guard, the Praetorium, which if you've seen Russell Crowe in Gladiator and the arena scene, they are the soldiers in black. They are ruthless. They are efficient. And in practice, they are emperor makers. And the Christian faith has even got to them. So 30 years after the public ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, his influence has reached the very heart of the empire, which stretched from Britannia in the northwest, us, down to Mauritania, which is kind of Morocco and below, as far east as Germanica, and then down to Arabia. As William Barclay described it, the crucified Galilean carpenter had already begun to rule those who ruled the greatest empire in the world. And Paul signs off with a mention of grace, which is God's undeserved love for us. Jesus is the channel of all good gifts which come to us. And so he writes, May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. His love for us enables us to both love him and love others. Let us pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, if we never have, may we appropriate the means of grace. And may we then exercise generous giving for the benefit of others, for even the benefit of ourselves, for living the way in which we're meant to live, and supremely for the glory of God. Amen.